Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I'm your host. This episode I have a special returning guest to talk about a movie from my childhood slash teenage years that it's a it's a weird movie but it certainly fits the tone of the cult film companion and it certainly has garnered a cult reputation i'm of course talking about highway to hell but before we dive into everything that is the the movie highway to hell and not the ACDC. I just wanted to mention that we are part of the Blind Knowledge Collective at www.blindknowledge.com and that is a great website to check out podcasts and video casts and music from creators all over the world. Check them out www.blindknowledge.com. I mean we are a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. Newsly picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse from articles from topics that you choose, and you could follow topics as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians, and will find the latest articles and then read them to you. Stop scrolling, start listening. And they have podcasts. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries. Our podcast, The Cult Film Companion, is, of course, there as a featured podcast. Download and use Newsly for free now, www.newsly.me, or the link in the description. And please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's Cult Film, drop the I, pop in a one, get a month free premium subscription. So, joining me this week is a returning guest, and I would like to welcome back to the Pult- Cult Film Companion podcast my friend uh, via the internet, a fellow New Englander, and a great content creator, Melvin. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back over. Um, good afternoon, everyone. A rainy afternoon here in New England. It sure is, and uh, that kind of, that, I mean, we've got to, I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about a movie, Highway to Hell, that's actually kind of bright and colorful. It's a bright and colorful movie for the most part, but we're uh, yes. kind of putting the... Yes, I would say it, it captures the feeling of the desert well. Like, um, you can feel the dust, and some scenes for me, the, the, the transfer that I watched, I watched it on Tubi, and you can feel it. Like in the chase scenes, for example, there's, there's chase scenes in this, 
and um you just feel that that sand like i can just imagine i was like wincing in parts like i can't imagine all that sand flying into your eyeballs and all that like ah. well i got some interesting stories about the sh the filming of this movie but before we get into that uh let's just kind of talk about what the plot of hot way to hell is we've got we've got lovers not on the run but lovers traveling to las vegas to get married uh, I'm trying to think what they call it. Elope. They're going to elope. Elope. They, yeah. yeah. They're talking about eloping. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, I guess, uh, I cannot remember this very clearly now, but is it said that they're teenagers? I think the implication is that they had just graduated high school. That's kind of like the feel I got from it. Maybe he's like a year yeah, older yeah. and she had just graduated. But in the lead, oh, in, okay. our, in, our, we, in our leads, we have uh, Chad Lowe, who is... Rob Lowe's brother, I don't really remember him from much. Uh, Rob Lowe has had much more prolific career, and his uh, yeah, girlfriend significantly more visible profile. Yeah, uh, and his uh, fiance, fiance uh, wife to be, is portrayed by Christy Swanson, and this was before starred in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And when I say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm referring to the movie, not the TV series. Yes. And early 90s, yeah, early 90s movie. We've got Patrick Bergen, who I'm not I, I'm not really familiar. I, I He's got a recognizable face. I'm sure I've seen him in, in things, but he portrays the devil or Beazle or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, Beazle, yeah, Beazle. We've got um, also in a in a small role, but just one of those character actors that I always remembered is Richard Farnsworth, who I I remember from the David Lynch movie The Straight Story. But he's he's one of those actors. He he just kind of turns up in all sorts of projects, and he's kind of got that. He just looks like a friendly grandfather. He just looks like your good old yes, friendly yes. grandpa, who uh who warns them that there's something dangerous on the road and uh, they're driving at night and they get pulled over uh, from the, a cop out of nowhere who turns out to be the hell cop who kidnaps uh, Christy Swanson and brings her to hell and she is to become the bride of Satan. Now, given that setup that I just said... You it sounds like a pretty dark movie, and I suppose that the underlying story is pretty dark, but this is a very, I would say, it's a almost campy horror comedy action adventure with some uh, mythological elements kind of incorporated here. And um, I would agree with that, yes. That's actually a very solid assessment. I guess you could say it's also... One of my main problems with the movie in that um, pitch as a horror movie, like, for example, I saw it on Tubi. I found it on Tubi, and I watched it there. And it says horror, and I think horror comedy would have been more accurate. But the, as we proceed, as the, as the story unfolds, a quest, you could say it's a quest. You know, he's making this quest that is a mytholo has mythological overtones. It's that the movie sort of doesn't quite stay in one thing. I would say the first half is very comedy-heavy. The first half is comedy. The second half gets a little more existential but it still has like these little moments of one-liners and one thing and things that we will get into but that's uh that was what struck me about the movie the 
that inconsistent tone that made me not engage as much as I might have if, if it had been a little more solid in its tone. Right. And I remember when I rented this from the video store years ago, this was in the horror section. If I had to choose between horror and comedy or like adventure, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I'd throw it in the horror category. I would I would say it's more humorous than than it is horrific. Um, but yes. What was your impression of it when you watched it back then? After you watched it, you were like, um, were you confused or frustrated by it? No, as a teenager, I I think that I, I felt I liked I remember liking the movie as a teenager, but I felt a little ripped off as far as thinking this was a horror movie because it's yes. And now this is interesting. We're going to get into some of the background of the movie here. Um the the idea for this movie came to uh screenwriter Brian Helgeland and uh, we're going to talk about some more of his later career in a second. But th the idea came to him one day, uh, one night, him and his wife were driving and they were pulled over by a cop. And the cop proceeded to kind of circle their car, fly, you know, sign, uh, flash that flashlight right in their eyes and kind of look around the car. And he circled the car. And he didn't do anything. And then he just like left, which is kind of a, you know, that's kind of just an odd experience to have with a police officer. There was no, I would imagine, yeah. there's no talking. There was no communication. If I had to warn a guess, I'm thinking that this cop was looking for a particular set of individuals in a particular car. And maybe they kind of fit the description. And then when he saw, Whatever he, he was looking for wasn't there. He just let them go. But to not say anything is kind of bizarre. And it was either... Yeah, it's terrifying, it, I would imagine. Yeah, it was either Helgeland or his wife. One of them said, well, that's the cop from hell. Um, just because it was so mm -hmm. bizarre. And so I think part of the reason that this got lumped into the horror category is that there is a lot of people with a background in horror involved in this movie. Brian Helgeland, who would later go on to win an Academy Award uh, for Best Screenwriting in 1998 or 99, I have it somewhere in my notes, 98, he won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for L.A. Confidential, had previously, his first produced script was for a low-budget horror movie called 976 Evil, which only is really only kind of notable because it's it was the directorial debut of Robert Englund, and Robert Englund, of course, oh, is, yes. is Freddy Krueger. So, for, uh, yeah, he wanted to try his hand at acting, and he produced um, and he directed uh, Helgeland's script, 976 Evil, which is a pretty, I mean, it's, a, it's an okay kind of B- horror movie if you're seeking that out but then Helgeland um on the on I'm guessing on the recommendation from Robert Englund he wrote the fourth installment in the very popular horror franchise Nightmare on Elm Street he wrote the screenplay for mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master not one of my favorite entries, but also not my least favorite entry in that particular series. So, yeah, we've got kind of a guy best known for writing 
horror screenplays. And this script has a very interesting backstory. He had shopped it around. He had gotten some um, some interest from different production companies and different movie studios. But they kind of, the way that this, this was originally scripted, they thought this movie was going to cost around $20 million to make. So they weren't willing to kind of invest in that. And so it kind of, it hopped around, and there was a couple different people attached at one point or another. Actually, one of my favorite horror directors, Stuart Gordon, was attached at one point to direct. Mm, wow. And so there were two producers at a, at a company called United Artist. And th- their names are John Byers and Marianne Page. And United Artists kind of flopped and was folded into MGM, and they were let go. And they had expressed interest in this screenplay. So as part of their severance package, when United Artists was folded into MGM, they were given the rights to Highway to Hell. And they brought it to John Daly of Hemdale Productions and... He said, okay, um, let's bring in Mr. Helgeland. And they kind of, the you know, those th- these three producers kind of worked with Helgeland to kind of um, not trim down his script, but to change it so it would be, um, they could film it at it a more, more affordable. Yeah. yeah, because they were initially, and, and there, there isn't much talk about what kind of stuff was was cut out, but you know this movie was budgeted at. I mean, they were gonna say this would probably take about twenty million dollars to do. So, on the other side of the uh, globe, well, not the other side of the globe, but you know, across the pond, as they say, a Dutch filmmaker named Ate de Young uh, was winning. Uh, international accolades for his World War II film, Shadow of Victory. And he had recently done uh, an episode of Miami Vice, which was very popular in the 80s. And he was looking to make his first American picture, and he was signed on to direct Highway to Hell. So... Okay. Yeah, we got some interesting players here involved, and you know, well, you, that brings it's an interesting point because now the moments when the movie feels a little bit existential, like almost like a Michelangelo Antonioni movie, now it makes sense, I guess. Now that now that I know that this about the director, yeah, he um he certainly brings a very unique visual flavor to this movie, and. There's some very interesting references scattered throughout this movie um, to various different things, and some of them I, a lot of them I didn't catch as a teenager. But you know, getting a little bit more familiarized with um, some myth, some myths, and uh, just having some general knowledge of like pop culture uh, kind of stuff. There's some very interesting little nods to to thing going on throughout this movie but to your point about it being very very dusty and um very it, feel, it feels almost it it's got the perfect setting for a western but it's not a western uh this movie was shot 
in Phoenix and Page, Arizona, and also in Glen Canyon, Utah, between October 25th, 1989, and then December 20th, 1989. And then Hemdale Productions went bankrupt. And this movie sat on the sh- this movie sat on the shelf for a couple years, and after this movie, um, Ate De Young directed one of my favorite kind of weird, quirky, gross out comedies as a kid that I loved. A movie called Drop Dead Fred. Have you ever seen Drop Dead Fred? I am trying to think of, because um, the name rings a bell, but I don't think I've seen it. Do, can you tell me a little bit who, who's in it, like, you know, just briefly? Um, well, the lead, the female lead is uh, Phoebe Cates from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, okay, yeah. No, I haven't seen it. No, okay, no. Yeah, you would rem- it. It's a. It's about how when she was growing up, she had a, an imaginary friend called Drop Dead Fred. And then, you know, as you grow up, you no longer have your imaginary friends and this guy drop dead fred comes back when she's in her like 20s and um it's just a bizarre movie it's very weird it's got some really <laughs> gross humor it's got some clever humor but i remember it was one of the movies that me and my brothers loved to watch that my mother hated she just not like this movie because oh, no, <laughs> there's a, i mean there's a lot of like just kind of like it's some of the the, the humor is pretty crude but anyway so he that was released before Highway to Hell came out. And oh, wow. finally, this movie limped, and I mean limped, onto theaters on March 13th, 1992 for the U.S. And guess how many theaters this was released into, Melvin? Just take a wild guess. I'm, I'm going to guess, say, a dozen theaters, maybe like a handful in L.A. and a, a few in New York and maybe Chicago. A dozen would have been nice. This was released in about eight theaters. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, man, they just wouldn't go another four more. (laughs) And the only reason that it was actually theatrically released was that in order for it to come out onto video, it needed to be released theatrically. So they were just like, "Uh, okay. And they probably threw some darts at a dartboard and released it in eight random theaters. This movie... Finally, you know, once the 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 script was uh was altered to be more um, budget friendly, it was the the budget was finally seven point five million, and it grossed about twenty thousand dollars at the box office. Damn! But consider wow. well, you know what? Considering twenty thousand dollars at eight theaters, eh, you know, it's not terrible. But it's also not. It's not terrible, yeah, because it was probably also like um, like let if you went to the theater, you probably wouldn't see it. Also, because it would be in, in like that very last screening room, like the one where that part of the theater was always kept. The lights were always kept off. Like, you know, you just wouldn't know. Like, you wouldn't you wouldn't have known because it probably had no marketing behind it. It sounds like it was a contractual obligation, and they did just the minimum required. They found like eight theaters where. I don't know, like where, and, and like maybe dead regions, not not the capital cities, and just just to fulfill the contractual obligation, and then they package it and send it off to video. Right, you know that's. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. I I 
I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure it was some sort of congratulatory thing. I mean, um, so yeah, Hemdale Productions. I I don't think they're around anymore, but they produced a lot of movies, and they were actually responsible for giving us the original Terminator movie, and yes. also Oliver Stone's Vietnam movie Platoon. Platoon, um, yeah, Handel. You think of Handel, you think of some awesome movies of the eighties and. Not so much in the 90s. I, I feel their, their heyday might have been the 80s. and the 90s, they kind of started to decline. Maybe they started losing money and such. And But yeah, like you said, like when you think of awesome movies growing up, like usually Handale might have had a hand in them. Yeah, and um, one of the producers, this guy, um, John Daly, unfortunately has this habit of being a uh, unwanted hands-on producer at times apparently what would happen is like the director and editor would work for the day and then they'd go home and then he'd go into like the editing bay and start re-editing the movies mm. and apparently yeah. apparently he did this with the terminator and i think the only reason that he got away with it at the time is that you know james cameron didn't have any name value or cachet like he does now no one's i mean nowadays like even after well after the terminator blew up i don't think after that no one's tinkering with a james cameron movie unless he's okay with it mm -hmm. um that's true i wonder what he did to terminator what he in what ways he messed with it or maybe cameron found out about it and maybe changed techniques like he would take the footage home or he would only shoot one take so he had no opportunity to do anything that kind of thing well, uh, it's, speaking of taking it home, you kind of uh, <laughs> you took the Oliver Stone approach. Uh, that's a, apparently what Oliver Stone did. Is like instead of leave oh. instead of leaving his footage laying around so that John Daly could mess with it, he just took it home with him. He's like, nah, you're not messing oh, with my movie." Anything in the studio, yeah, in the editing room. So yeah, because I watched I one of other than Criterion, one of another company that I like that put out some some kind of obscure, weird, rare movies is Kino Lorber. I picked up yes. that uh, I picked up Kino Lorber uh, version of Highway to Hell, and I and I I watched uh, the movie, and then I watched it with the director's commentary and very interesting uh, commentary. But he's he's like the basis where I'm getting all this information from. And he mentioned some scenes, and I mean, it's it's tough for me to, to kind of voice my opinion on it, because I don't know what the original scenes looked like, but he just kind of mentioned, he would say offhandedly, that this was a this was a shot that John Daly... I think that um, I, apparently John Daly likes uh, kind of rapid edits, like one of those rapid fire, like there's got to be a cut every two seconds kind of thing. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, Ate Deyong was saying that he kind of likes to let the um, the scenes breathe and that he has a very meticulous way of, of filming and shooting. But I've rambled enough. I'm I'm interested to hear what... Um, because this was a first-time watch for you, correct? It was a first-time watch, yeah. It's interesting. Just maybe a month ago, um, there's a YouTube channel that I watch where um, they do movies like that, and he, they, he, they kind of cover movies like this, and he happens to cover this one. 
and I had never heard of the movie. I somehow, this is one that back in the days of the video store, I never noticed the poster or the cover. So when you um, uh, approached me about this, I was, oh, it's interesting. It's that movie that I actually heard about a few weeks ago. And I looked it up and, oh, there are two to the rescue. Two yeah. always <laughs> yes, and, it does. Um, yeah, it was the first time watched. Watch, first time watched. So what is so? What were your like your general thoughts about it? Um, I mean, you you well, overall, I liked it all. I liked it. It was entertaining. Uh, on a more specific basis, it felt inconsistent. Like the movie starts in a comedic sort of way. Like um, he's they're in a diner. They're taking a break from their their road trip to Vegas to get to elope, and he's paranoid about a cop who's just there. Who's just I think he's playing a video game, but he's getting paranoid about it, and then they leave. And the whole scene up until they take an exit and uh, uh, to lose the cop, because he, he's convinced the cop is chasing him. It's just the cop. This is not the hell cop that we mentioned earlier. No. It's just a, a regular cop on the beat just doing his route. But um, our hero is very paranoid about it. And he takes an exit. He takes a highway exit to see if he is being followed. And the cop doesn't. The cop just goes on his merry way. And up until that point, the movie has a like a silly, fun, comedic tone because he's sort of bumbling. He's a young guy, but a little bit insecure, a little bit um, foolish, and I guess nervous too because they're eloping. They're doing something, you know, they're going to tell their parents later something that they're probably going to lose their shit when they find out that they did that. Sure, because, yeah. Again, the movie's not specific, but it implies that they they just finished high school. They're, they're just out of high school. Yeah. So up until then, now they're in this dark highway. And now the tone is more is more dark and ominous. But then they run into one gas station where the actor that you mentioned earlier is in there, and the movie again becomes silly and comedic. But then after that scene passes, again the movie becomes more ominous, and it stays that way until our hero goes to hell to look find his girlfriend. And there the movie, for this first half of the movie, it stays mostly in a comedic tone, in a sort of silly, campy comedic tone, and um. Yeah, I, I liked it overall, but I, I found that a little frustrating. I wouldn't say frustrating, but like a minor nag in my brain. Like I, in a non-conscious kind of way, I registered those changes. I registered how the movie sort of went from like a, a an existential uh, like road trip to just silly, fun, happy <laughs> uh, movie. And that kept me a little bit frustrated, but in a, in a mild way. Like some things I registered more in my subconscious than in an, in an overconscious way. I think how about you? Let's see how your thoughts on that. Well, I think you bring up a very interesting point. Um, I think it's very interesting that the the beginning of this movie, like the first third, takes place at night, and it is very, like you said, it's dark, it's ominous. Um, there's a sense of paranoia. I mean, he's he's concerned that um, he finds out that uh, Christy Swanson's character had left a note for her mom. So he's like, oh, my God, your parents know. They ca- they called the police. This cop's after us. And so, yeah, he's very paranoid. And oh, then yes, and then they... I forgot um, about that. Yeah, like, she left a note and that made him lose his shit even more. Like, he split, he split his food and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, you see, he's after us. He's definitely after us. It almost... It, it, it kind of seems like this kind of scene you would have in a sitcom or something. It's, um... And then they, they arrive at, um... And I don't know if this is like a prerequisite for for horror. I'm using that in air quotes. Movies to have like a weird, quirky gas station. I mean, like there's like Roman pillars <laughs> in this gas station holding up yes, the lights. Exactly. Yeah. And the guy's the station when he first pumps the gas, 
um, I guess he hasn't, there's not much business because of the highway, you know, like these little side stations don't have much business. And he starts pumping, like, you know, activating the pumps. That's like the pumps that you have to push, prime them by pushing right. the handle to prime them. And you see like dust, like sand coming off the pump at first because it's just been so long since he used it. And, uh, yeah, so he gets kind of creeped out by this old guy. And then, like, the old guy. Yeah. And then it's peculiar because the guy's like, um, listen, I got a cabin out in the back. Fresh sheets. You guys could spend yeah. You guys could spend the night here. And they're like, no, we're good, dude. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go to Vegas. That reminded me of, um, I don't know if it was... Um... Oh my god! One of those Ivan Reitman comics from the two thousands. I don't know. If I I want to say um, Road Trip or Euro Trip. The one where like Grandpa takes Viagra and now his his junk is like his erection is knocking things over. I was thinking of that. I don't know why. Like maybe like if it was in the comics of today, you, Viagra will probably be mentioned in that scene. Bro, sure. yeah. <laughs> I got a bottle of Viagra there and on, on this cab, and I promise I, I, he's like, I promise you your privacy, and you're just like, all right, man, you're you're uh, you're overstepping your bounds here. We just wanted some gas, and he tells them to be careful. I think he tells them to be careful, not to fall asleep, and or don't stop until you pass the second Joshua tree. And yes, yes. They are, they're driving along. She falls asleep. The dog falls asleep. Um, and they're just about to approach that second Joshua tree. When all of a sudden this car, uh, cop car pulls out of, uh, behind a billboard, I think. And, um, I think what happened was, um, they passed the first tree, but before they can get to the second one, you know, he falls asleep, hits the billboard. And then stops, you know, so they, they, you know, he made that, the he hit the brakes before they could make it to the second tree, which I guess prompts the helicopter. Okay. Never, I like that about that, and that it's never, he tells, he warns them, but you don't see that pay off until later. And it's like, okay, so if you go in between those two trees without stopping, you're good. But if you stop before in between that area, I guess, you know, that's helicopter's uh, beat. So he, he gets you. And that's what happens. He hits that billboard. Uh, helicopter is hiding behind it, and now just um, the helicopter just cuts them up, and it's an awesome introduction. Yeah, and take over. And then um, we get our first look at helicopter, and I I I dig the look of the helicopter. Um, yes, yes. In a, in a different context, he would be a terrifying character, but uh, again, because of the the tone of this movie, he kind of. Uh, He's sort of a little bit of a, a joke, even though he is terrifying and physically pressed, has an impulsive presence. He never quite, we never quite cross over into that, into that, into that situation where he would be like a, a foe. He would be like a Jason or a Freddy Krueger. Right. We never quite get there, but he is an impulsive presence. And so we see first he has this uh, car that sounds like there's a, uh, the engine is like a, 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 a an, en an engine. Um, the engine is a, what, what, what am I trying to say? Uh, kind of sounds like a beast. Yeah. It, it doesn't make the noise of a car. It whines. And when he steps out, his he puts down his boot and smoke comes out of it. Yeah. Like he, it steps up and like he leaves like little smoke puffs. So he, this guy literally stepped out of hell. Great so, introduction. Then he's like big and imposing. He's scarred. Like his head and uh, face are scarred. His sunglasses are sort of stuck to his face permanently amazing just a really cool creature this time so um 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the actor and a little bit about the makeup. So the actor is C.J. Graham, who I knew nothing about, but he played, again, going back to our, our horror references here, he played Jason and Jason Lives Friday the 13th Part 6. So, oh, okay, okay, yeah. And originally, I guess as scripted, the Hellcop was supposed to be half man, half lizard, and um, they their makeup guy, uh, Steve Johnson, was like, "No, you don't want to, you don't want to go with that. That's like one of the most uh, no half half lizard, half zombie." So they were just like, "Eh, that's kind of like stuff that's been done before," and so mm-hmm. he took inspiration. That he figured that if this guy's from hell, hell is, you know, kind of like what we think of a stereotypical hell is hot and fire. So maybe that you've been burned by the flames of hell. Um, but they made they made a conscious effort. They're like, well, we really don't want it. I mean, the most notorious horror villain that has, is burned is Freddy Krueger. So they made it a conscious effort not to make the guy look like Freddy Krueger. So he's he's got this kind of it kind of looks like the skin it looks kind of like a melting mannequin kind of look, but then they put yeah, in melting a combination also cuts like maybe he he fought one of the Cenobites and got cut to hell but it won the fight kind of thing. So <laughs> what actually is is there's written I guess there's biblical verses written all over his head. That's what it I, the little oh, scars. Wow. That is pretty clever then. Yeah, there. Um, he took inspiration from he was uh, Steve Johnson was reading Clive Barker's book, uh, one of the books of blood, and the guy. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. He cut. I think he gets either tattooed or every time he commits a crime or a sin that it becomes like, um, drawn into his body. Um. Or I think the whole basis for the Book of Bloods is all the stories are written on this one guy. It's been a while since I've visited the Books of Blood. So apparently there's all sorts of ominous things written all over this guy's face. And like you said, it looks like his sunglasses. They just look like a pair of Ray-Bans, but they got no... um, they got none of those side earpieces. They're like molten. Side earpieces. Yeah, he it, has no ear. I'm to think of it. I, I don't think either. He does. They're burned off. No, he's got oh, ears. He does? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I just know because I'm looking at the, the DVD cover and he's got ears. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Um, uh, but it looks like the, uh, the, the glasses are kind of molted into his face. And then. Yeah, like they're stuck there, yeah. And then when we go to hell, everything becomes like bright and colorful like i mean it's all shot in the yeah. desert so it's kind of a weird juxtapose of like you know if they were traveling a day and then they end up in hell and it's it's nighttime or it's all fire and kind of stuff but this version of hell is weird it's almost like peewee's playhouse if peewee's playhouse mm-hmm. like yes. went into hell that's just kind of what i would think of um, like the first playhouse, yeah, that's Edge on Hell, yeah. That that was like one or two sketches away from being like a terrifying show. <laughs> but I mean, what, I mean, do you, what do you think overall about their depiction of Hell? What did you think? I thought it, it was just funny. It was more like a, like a, like um. Let me see briefly. Uh, it it was just I don't know. Like, I, I guess let's say. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just thought of this now, actually. Let's say uh, if you had a group of comedians who never quite struck it rich and they all went to one place and you had to listen to their number all day long, I guess that's what this hill will be like. Because <laughs> in a way, that's <laughs> what it was. You have Ben Stiller nonstop throwing jokes at you every time you went past him. You had his father trying to get a cup of coffee in there, um, uh, and he could, and he got uh, burnt, I think. But the place as a whole, like the waitress, also the waitress had like a her. She had a routine, I guess, about her life. Like everything was a a, a stand-up. Everything was a stand-up routine, and that, and that, at least in some portion of hell, like the the initial, the part of hell that we were introduced to when. They, when Chat Low starts his quest to look for his girlfriend, it, just, it was just like a, a, a hell for for comedians, I guess. Like a, you you, know, you never quite struck it rich. You never quite got to the level of Kevin Hart or any of those people. So this is where you go, and you get to do your act all, all the time, nonstop. Yeah. And nobody really pays attention to you, but you get to say it. Yeah, I mean the first the first set piece in Hell is this coffee shop, and so we got a note. So um. We have Jerry Stiller uh, playing a cop. That's his wife, um, Anne Mera. Is, is it was the waitress, and oh, okay, yeah, yeah. They got them as a package deal. They were like, okay, like we got they. Uh, the intent was they wanted to get some um, some comedians in for for cameo roles, and they didn't really have the budget to get too many. But they got Jerry Stiller and his wife. Um, and Mara, who agreed to do it, but they needed to include their children in it. So we have, I think this is yeah. Ben Stiller's first film role. And then Amy Stiller, is, yeah. Amy Stiller shows up later in the movie um, as Cleopatra. And we'll get to that scene later. But I wanted to talk. Oh, a little... oh, OK, OK. Now I remember I was a little confused by that, by Cleopatra. But okay, now you cleared that up for me. Okay. Yeah, there's a there's um there's a scene. Well, well let's talk about the coffee shop first, because this is like this is like um I kind of see it as this coffee shop is where all the bad cops go, and if you look, they're all waiting for cups of coffee that never get filled, and the yes. the thing of donuts on the counter is all locked up. So I guess. The implication is if you're a bad cop and you go to hell that you can never have your coffee and donuts. So I guess that's the joke. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then you I like the fact also that the uniforms are dusty. So they've been waiting a long time. Like that little detail too. They've oh, been waiting so long, like dust is settling on them. They're like becoming like stone almost. Right. Exactly. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the implication of like you were saying about the stand up comic that never makes it, that they're just kind of stuck in this loop. These cops are all stuck in a donut shop where they can never have donuts and coffee. And then you have Ben Stiller as the short order cook out on the sidewalk and he's cooking everything on the sidewalk because it's hot as hell. I have to say, I'm going to ask for your opinion in a second. I like Ben Stiller. I think he's very, very funny. I did not think he is funny at all in this role. I did not find him funny and he improvised all of his lines. I didn't think he was funny. What did you think? I I thought he was okay. Like um, I think it, he was start, starting up, and it shows. Like his material was that his material was probably stuff he did for his father when he was a teenager, <laughs> and like I, I, like he said to give his son a break. Like um, 
they they put it in the movie, and it's funny because the the video that I watched, they said the same thing. They said the, the people, the producers, they said like, this guy, yeah, he's never gonna amount to anything. Like this guy sucks. He's not funny at all. And I think they wanted to even get rid of him or find some way to edit him out of the movie. But I guess they couldn't because of what you mentioned, the the deal that you know for which Jerry Stiller and his wife got the, their kids in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it, it's. It's beginner's act. It's like uh, someone just starting out in comedy. Yeah. But, uh, I'm glad he stuck with it because eventually he got much better at it. But yeah, like I know what you mean. It was just elementary. It's like jokes. Like it's like something you would do at, at the local club if you, you you decide to do one, you know, amateur night kind of thing. Yeah. Or like you said, you know, I get, you got to cut the guy some slack. I mean, like I said, I, I, I happen to think that most of his funny movies – Excuse me, are quite funny. Uh, I think he's very talented. Yes, I agree. I just think that this. I mean, if I was going to show someone a <laughs> a, a clip of Ben Stiller being funny, it's not going to be this. <laughs> no, I no, mean, don't show him that. No, definitely, that would work against him. No, but it's cool to see he's moving on. But he actually got much, much better. And in fact, um, all around like on a tour because you know eventually he started writing and directing as well. Right. As starring in, in movies, so. Very good, good for him. That you know, out of a very humble beginning, that had no promise, he he's become very uh, much very good a comedian and filmmaker. And then we've got, um, uh, I mean, this movie kind of it, it, after they go to hell, it's kind of just like a series of set pieces almost. Uh, we've got the coffee yeah, shop. Yes, then we get um, Chad Lowe gets into hell, and the first person he comes across is. Does he end up at the donut shop first? He ends up, eventually ends up at the donut shop. There's this gang. Um, oh, we got to mention. Uh, I forgot to mention. The reason that this guy, the old crazy gas station clerk, knows all this stuff about what's going on is that uh, him and his wife were traveling and she got kidnapped by the hell cop and brought to hell, I think he said, 40 years ago? Um, yes, yeah, we forgot that when when that happens, when um when Chadlow's girlfriend is kidnapped, Christy Swanson, he goes back to the old man for, and the old man immediately. I and I like that sequence too because there's none of this disbelief. Like I find that irritating when someone goes through like a bizarre, surreal experience in a movie, and when someone tries to explain to them what is happening, they refuse to believe it. And in this movie, actually, that was very clever writing. They he under he accepts immediately what happened, and you know when he starts briefing him here, take this. And take this, and take this awesome, like you know, vintage car. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. In that sequence, we find out that um, the old man, his, uh, I think he's like he said, yeah, forty years ago, they were riding, and you know that happened. Hell, cop uh, came and took his girl, and um, his girl is there now, and she looks like she did forty years ago. She's young. I don't know the actress. I, I like to, I tried to look up the actress, but I couldn't find any information on her. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember. Her. Actually, I don't even remember what her character's name is, but yeah, that's how he knows yeah, what's. I think it's Elizabeth. I want to say her list. I think you might be right. Um, Sam. Yeah, yeah, because he he. Uh, Clara. He a conversation with her because. Um, Clara is her name. I'm sorry. Clara is her name. Clara. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because he recognizes her from a photo when he goes back to to tell the old man what happened, and he explains, you know, what happened. And what he needs to take with him, there's a photo of her. And then later on, when he is going through hell looking for her, he runs into this gang, and she is with the gang. She's like a you know like a, a hell biker gang. So yeah. They seem to be riding um, BMX bikes rather than 
like Harleys. Like that's what I would expect Hell Riders to ride, like big hogs, you know. But no, they have like a motocross bike. Yeah, they like got a dirt bikes. Thing about that, maybe they couldn't afford Harleys. That would have been like, not a, a too expensive. Probably, and that gang. Other than the leader of that gang, I want to say Royce is the leader of the gang, portrayed by Adam yes. Stork. Other than that, the other gang members were an up-and-coming English rock group uh, who never... They mentioned the name in the commentary. I've never heard of them, so I'm not going to mention anything else. <laughs> but they were uh, they were supposed to be... Even the director was kind of... <laughs> in the commentary, was like, well, they were an up-and-coming rock group uh, they were probably more up and coming then than they are now. And I was just like, okay. Wow. Um, uh, it's pretty bad. If you cannot even name one single or at least, you know, like their one hit wonder kind of thing. Like, no, they're I not. Something happened and they're on their way up. But we do get we do get a rock star in here in, in one scene. Uh, Chad Lowe um, comes across a hitchhiker who is 80s rock star Lita Ford. Who was, oh, yes, I remember that, yeah. Who was more... Yeah, that was a fun scene, too, because she started tempting him with her cleavage. I mean, that's the whole thing that I, I guess... That the whole point of this movie is that um, hell is all about temptation. It's good versus evil. Sometimes what is good is not all, always good. Sometimes what is evil is not always bad. But, yeah, he's tempted by this hitchhiker who leans into his car. And she was... Lita Ford was more than happy to show off her cleavage... Um, yes. but the female producer was not a fan, uh, Marianne Page, um, for a couple reasons. She didn't, she didn't want, um, like to have this movie to be over, overly sexualized. And at the time they were, they were aiming for a PG 13, so they didn't want things to get too graphic. Uh, this movie, mm. as released, is rated R, and it's funny because on the box, it says rated R for bizarre fantasy violence, which I say, okay, and then for nudity, and I was like, nudity? I don't remember any nudity. There is nudity in this yeah, movie. Either. I don't remember any at all. Well, I think back, I wanted the movie in my mind, and like, no, yeah, you really probably. Know. I don't think we get anything like that. No, we do. We get gross female naked demon nudity when. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This I, is bizarre because it's like, wait, maybe you, you need to get more specific and say bizarre. Well, say human nudity or otherworldly nudity. I was gonna say, yeah, it's not human nudity. It's such a vague reason to give the movie an R. So unspecific. Yeah, I mean, I I would think with a couple trims here and there, um, this could easily be a PG thirteen. But regardless, but there is nudity. Like you said, I love it. It should definitely be for otherworldly nudity, because there is a scene where uh, Chad Lowe is being tempted by Christy Swanson, but then a la that scene in The Shining, he looks into the mirror and. Uh, the girl he is with is actually a repulsive demon. Um, yes, yeah, her body you... is just bizarre, twer- like scaly, slithery, slimy looking. And, and she gets aggressive. Yeah, she starts like attacking him, throwing him against the wall, like using her tail to strangle him. Yeah, she uses her tail. You, you heard that right, people. She has a tail. She is naked. Yeah. And the nudity is that she has gross saggy and i mean saggy like down to her waist 
gross demon boobs, and that's the nudity yeah, that yeah. we're given. Yeah, talking uh, about like unappealing nudity, a nudity that will <laughs> make you turn you off from nudity. Actually, right? Nudity You're... that is would make you not want to see nudity. No, it, it, it's it, it very much. Uh, the director did it comment on that in the commentary that it's very much an homage to that scene in The Shining. Um, I'm sure if you've seen oh, this. Oh, nice! Wow. Do you remember that scene in The Shining? Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very unsettling scene, especially because the what it perceives it is so tempting. You know, like they're in that place alone, but there's this beautiful woman just waiting for Jack Nicholson to come over. And you know what happened? We're not gonna get into that because we know what happens. But what I like about this sequence is, um, early in the movie he gave her a pendant because you know she is a little bit, uh, she is kind of having second thoughts about what they're doing. Yes. And he gives her like a little like a uh, a pendant, a necklace and a pendant. And when he comes over, you know she lost, she loses it when Hellcat kidnaps her. He loses that, she loses that pendant. He finds it on the floor. And eventually goes after her, and he has it with him through the whole um, journey, through the whole uh, uh, ordeal. Yep. And when he reaches her, first of all, she's usually attracted to violence. He's been fighting Hillcop and that sequence that we mentioned. And he, so he's bloody. His face and nose are bloody. And Christy Swanson is, like, licking the blood and just getting very sexual. And he tries to put, give her the pendant, and she has no interest in it. And he's just, what is going on here? Like, you're acting so weird. Like, I'm, you know, I've been after you all this time. I'm happy to see you, but you're acting so bizarre. And then he looks in the mirror and, ah, there's the reveal. Okay. Yeah. And we see that later on when he does catch up with the real Christy Swanson. The next time, the the thing he does is he shows her the pendant. And it's, oh, okay, now I know it's you because he's acting so bizarre with her. Yeah. Because she doesn't know what he went through. So it really well put together, really cool sequence that, that pays off over the, the, over the next, into the next scene. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, and that's what I got to say. That the, There's some clever um, script writing and some very clever uh, filmmaking going on. Some of the things yeah, that I got... Mythology also. For example, when he goes back to the old man, he explains, well, there was, you know, uh, my girl, like, she made that choice. She went with them. You know, I like that. In that little moment, they give the, the character so much more depth. And when we see her, when he, Chatlow runs into her, and he has a conversation with her, too. That you know, like you, I made a choice. You know, you should leave now. But you know, I'm not leaving without her. He explained, I'm not leaving without my girlfriend. Yeah. So it's not. I mean, like it's a movie that it, it has camp, but um, there is very clever writing and very uh, clever execution of scenes. So it still holds up. It's still very well made. It's just that odd on the that odd um lack of consistency in the tone. How it just goes from camp to comedy. And almost from scene to scene, one scene can be hard, but then suddenly it becomes comedy and camp again. Then it becomes more horror-driven. It's just constantly from one scene to another that happens. Yeah, it's very inconsistent in its tone. I mean, um, I just want to mention some of the clever things that I particularly like is that the Hellcop has hand cuffs. Yes, hands. These are hands. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was really impressive. Yeah. Do they get a little bit into how they created that in the commentary? Because that was awesome. They were... It was both a visual fun that was really clever, but as a practical effect, it was so well made. They were just so cool. Uh, they were very, very... They were so well, like... They were very, very expensive. I think they cost around $17,000 to make. Wow. Um, uh, but I love... I mean, I that's kind of why I love this 
I mean, and I'm going to lump this into horror just for the sake of my point, but I love the practical effects that were going on in the 80s as far as uh, horror practical effects are. Those hands, they've got like a life of their own. Like the, the hands almost have personality. Like uh, I kind of would say that it's kind of like Thing from the Adams Family, that hand that just walks around. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a member of the family. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I love the, uh, I love that that he's got actual handcuffs, and um, it's, yeah. and it's funny. And they're like zombie hands. They're like greenish, like a sort of like rotten, but not decaying. They're just sort of like a, they got like a the color of like a corpse. You know, when a corpse starts uh, changing colors, they have that color to them. Absolutely, and but it's funny because one of the scenes. When she briefly escapes from Hellcop, she pours hot coffee on the hands, and the hands react like they're getting burned, yeah. and they release her. Um, another uh, one, of, another clever thing that I like is that we see a, a um, we see a part of Hell that it's Good Intentions Paving Company, and of course, oh, yes, the, yes. the 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 quote is the the road to Hell is paved in good intentions, and you have these people walking up. And declaring their sins, like one guy was like, uh, yeah, I let her drink that cup of bleach, but she that was a lesson she needed to learn. Or a lady walks up and is oh, like, yes, yes. I was only sleeping with my husband's boss to help uh, boost his career. <laughs> and then they just they're just yeah. led into this meat grinder. Um yeah, that we get. Oh, wow, yeah. But another one of the one of the things that I definitely didn't pick up on as a teenager that I just picked up on this rewatch, and I think this is genius. It's probably my favorite little part of the movie that has absolutely nothing to do with the plot or anything, is that we have what looks like sanitation workers that are all dressed up like Andy Warhol throwing trash onto the highway instead of cleaning it up and i love it it's like a... oh i never noticed that actually i mean i saw them but i i thought they were picking up the trash instead of throwing the trash no it's a bunch of people and they all have like the white hair like andy warhol and andy warhol sunglasses and they're like throwing campbell soup cans onto the highway oh wow i didn't know yeah once again another little clever nod to i guess because that will be considered hard. like andy warhol did that he gets paid millions of dollars for, like, I don't know, for it. But here it's just, I don't know, I guess the, the director say what he thinks about Andy Warhol? No, he said he liked... He was dead at this point, so I wonder what his thoughts were on Andy Warhol, if I put in that. Well, what he said is just, like, I mean, he did the... What would... He said Andy Warhol spent his life creating art to make the world a more beautiful and interesting place. What would Andy Warhol be like in hell? He would be throwing trash onto the highway. And that's pretty much, that kind of sums it up. So I thought oh, okay, that okay. was pretty clever. And then we have a, our next set piece takes place at Hoffa's. So apparently this is where what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, he now, he, he runs a club in hell now, apparently. Uh, but like you said, that, that's... Yeah, that was pretty funny, yeah. That's oh, yeah, I, I guess we do get nudity there, right? Don't we have, like, a brief... Oh, um, yeah, you're right. There is... There's a there's a cage yeah, dancer guess, that's yeah we, yeah, yeah, we, we do get yeah but we don't get nearly we we get a, a couple shots here and there we get full on like yeah demon uh, nudity later 
But this is, yeah, this is kind of where, like, the tone kind of goes all over the place because he shows up to to, to rescue uh, Christy Swanson, and then he gets shot, like, full-on shot right in the chest. Like, and that's a, it's a pretty yeah. gory shot. Like you said, like, it's kind of lighthearted and funny and goofy. We're at a place called Hoffa's, and, I mean, it's all... And then we got... It, it, so then we go from like a weird abstract kind of looking kind of place to a guy getting shot in the chest and then we get him recovering from his gunshot wound Bezel comes to help save him and then we get a scene where Attila the Hun Cleopatra and Hitler are all sitting around a table talking it's bizarre um, it's bizarre, yeah, because like, I guess that was Amy Stiller. Like uh, what you mentioned earlier made yes. sense to me now about why they were spending so much time on these people. And I can understand in the case of Hitler because that was actually Hitler was Gilbert Gottfried. He was playing Hitler. And Gilbert Gottfried. And the whole thing is happening too. Like a servant is like paging Idi Amin. It's something that I get now, but if I'd seen this back then, I would have no idea who he was talking about at the moment. Right. I immediately knew I was like, okay, that's Gilbert Gottfried, who is famously Jewish, playing Hitler, which is just ex- Hitler, yeah. is something that Gilbert Gottfried would do. And then you got Ben Stiller as I had to look it up. I thought it was Genghis Khan, but apparently it's Attila the Hun. And ben then Attila Cleopatra. The okay. Yeah, him again. Yeah, it's funny. And then but then we get Gilbert Gottfried who's just improvising and he has got some of the best lines here. He's like, Once I meet the devil, he's going to say, you're not Hitler, you're Bob. He's going to say, Bob, you're in the wrong place. It's so bizarre. And then it cuts over to this. Exactly, yeah. It cuts over to a scene, and I guess the joke was, so Attila the Hun, Cleopatra, and Hitler were all dictators. So then the next table over is reserved for future dictators that were going to die, uh, two of which I didn't recognize. Muammar Gaddafi, I remember from the news, and then there's a seat reserved for Jerry Lewis. Did you see that? Uh, I don't remember Jerry Lewis, but I do remember Muammar Gaddafi. And I think the other person who had a seat reserved there was Imelda Marcos, actually. Okay. But yeah, th- there's a seat yeah, reserved I, for... I didn't notice Jerry Lee. Yeah. I, I think that might have been a, a little not comedians kind of like roasting Jerry Lee, I, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, no, Jerry Lee, actually. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis, yeah. Um... There's a big difference between Jerry Lee Lewis and Jerry Lewis. Um, you know, it was actually... For a moment, I kind of got the next stuff, yeah. But I think maybe it was like a little roast, too, because um, Jerry Lewis was like a, I guess, let's say, a wholesome comedian. We could call him that. He was more about body language, and I guess he comes from a different era. So his comedy was more wholesome, and I guess maybe that's part of the reason why he was so... He had a fairly broad success. So and these comedians were more, you know, they took a new wave. I guess they were more uh, aggressive. Their comedy was more uh, savage. It kind of dealt with social issues in a more aggressive and a more direct confrontational way. So, so maybe that's what it was. It was just maybe among comedians, he was not seen as a real comedian. So it was like a private dig at someone that maybe in the comedic uh, comedian community he's not respected. Well, it was actually let's say. It actually, the idea to have Jerry Lewis's name there was Ben Stiller's idea. And I guess the oh, okay. the, the joke was that um, 
Jerry Lewis used to be, I mean, you, you say wholesome. His comedy was straight up goofy at times, like The Nutty Professor. He was a, yeah. a very over-the-top, silly voices. But then he started to get, like, super serious, like, in the 80s. And for some reason, the French people seemed to love Jerry Lewis. So um, the reserved card is written in French. It says, like, Pouvre the reserve for Jerry Lewis. So it was all, I. that was... Probably the funniest oh, okay. contribution of that Ben Stiller brought to the movie was like, okay, uh, we're gonna see Jerry Lewis in hell, but yeah, very sophisticated joke, yeah, very sophisticated on the part of a uh, uh, Ben Stiller, yeah, yeah, I think that, and 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 I think it's funnier than any of the improv that he does earlier in the movie. It should be noted that one of the more I think that I found disturbing and also that Andrew, my co-host, found particularly disturbing the reason he didn't want to talk about this movie. Um, and it didn't bother me as a teenager, but it bothered me a lot as an adult, is that Beazel, who it turns out to be the devil, uh, shows up as an auto mechanic, but then also shows up to um, to save Chad Lowe after he got shot. He's got a little boy companion, and, like, the thought that this little kid who's still alive technically is in hell is pretty disturbing. It's – and, like I said, it didn't really bother me as a teenager. I was probably like, oh, my God, the little kid's in hell. And the, but now, like, as an adult looking back, I'm like, uh-uh, why is this little kid in hell? Please, somebody get him out of hell. Like, this is bad. Yes. Yeah. I guess someone had that same idea, yeah, because um, I guess we're getting, getting jumping a little bit ahead, but um, I mean, he does get rescued from hell, but yeah, what's interesting about the sequence is, um, before this happens, uh, his car, uh, Chad's car breaks down, and he finds one of these, like, uh, I guess, payphones that are like emergency roadside payphones, and there was like a funny exchange where he just shoots the phone, but what leads to, that's what leads to Beasel's character being introduced to the movie who's very helpful in this place where everybody everybody is either hostile or a sarcastic asshole he is very helpful he he tows the car away he fixes it he gives him instructions on where to go next to find um find a helicopter and then that leads to the hop out situation and what happens what you mentioned when he gets shot and it turns out he's alive again he lives because i guess his soul is is kind there's so much kindness in him that um, Hilltop can't quite kill him. But it's interesting, yeah, and that Beetle, very helpful. He's like the one person who's very helpful and very um, kind to be, kind, kind to him. So that is interesting, and I guess I should have been a tip up to us that way. Why is this guy being so kind in this place where everybody is just a dick to you? At, if, at best, they're a dick. At worst, they want to kill you. So they right. take something from you. Uh, but it, and it turns out at the end we find out that Beazel is Beelzebub, the devil, the entire time. Um, yeah, so Hilltop is serving him, and he, I guess he asked him to bring Christy Swanson to him. Right, because she's supposed to be the. Bro I guess he's bored also, so he kind of set up a situation where Chat Low went to find her. You know, went through all these different levels of hell. I almost want to wonder now. Now I'm trying to think back. How many places did Chatlow go look for her? I wonder if it's seven. You know, like, is this not the seven circles of hell now? Yeah. He, we we quite an ordeal. Like, um, he goes through, like, a series of tunnels, and he almost drives off a cliff. Yep. And then he has to follow all these people wearing white cowls 
to uh to Sharon, to Sharon, I think the 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 person who takes you to the beyond. You, you have to get on his raft. You have to cross and the. He takes you over there, and uh, you have to cross the river sticks. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know if it's seven. Um. But he, yeah. I. It's probably shy of seven. But yeah, because he eventually ends up, um, crossing the river Styx, and that was a uh, uh, Kevin Peterhall, who's, I guess, best known for playing uh, playing the Predator in the first two Predator movies. Very very tall yes. individual. Um. Who's got some great. Um makeup going on his eyes are sewn shut um so sh- yeah that was ugh, that looks so nasty yeah and then we got a three-headed devil dog and then um yeah he's got to cross the river sticks to finally get to um i forget what they call it hell city hell tower um but um i i think it was that yeah and, i can't remember but yeah i guess it's almost like a video game like uh you're reaching you're not next to the final level. You're you're almost at the the underboss at the underboss level. Right, and I mean it's we got a very interesting um, exchange between. And he actually asked the devil. He's like, "Well, why why did you help me then?" Like, and he's like, "The the devil's just like a mischief maker, and I guess he's all about temptation, and he." What he finds particularly appealing is that what he really wants is he doesn't want uh, Hellcop to bring him women to be his bride. He wants someone to come willingly. And they finally, uh, I mean, Chad Lowe offers, he goes, well, well, let her go, but you can keep me. And he goes, no, I have no interest in you. But they finally, they finally get their way out of hell by saying, Okay, we're gonna we're we're leaving and we're taking Adam. Um, Adam was the young boy they were talking about. That was, um, I mean, the implications was is that Bezel was grooming him to be the next devil because he was saying that Bezel was show like Bezel. He said he was talking to uh, Chad Lowe's character and he said Bezel can fix fix anything and he's t- teaching me how to fix stuff. So I guess the implication is that. Oh uh, yeah. So like yeah, that there's. True. It's a it's a very I mean and then but like we get this very it's a very like the devil's pretty campy looking like he's got, he's got like these green contact lenses and he's got horns and kind of stuff. But I mean the implications that he's kidnapped this young boy to become the next Satan. That's a that's a pretty yes. That's a pretty heavy thing to to lay out there. Um, you know, it's funny. Also, now that you mentioned that, the other character—I um, forgot what did you call him—the one who wasn't the, the the leader of the motorcycle gang. Royce. Royce. <clears throat> Royce. Yeah. Royce kind of has an issue with Beastel, and I almost wonder if maybe Royce was supposed to be the next one, but for whatever reason, they haven't. You know, he keeps talking about I want to leave, like it's my turn. Like he gets sort of arguing with Beastel. And I almost wonder maybe at some point he was supposed to be the successor, but maybe it didn't work out. I, so he kidnapped this little boy, and that's part of the issue why of uh, Royce is so upset, is mad, and I guess that's why he took um, Liz as a partner. I think I think know, it leads to that situation where he tries to make a run out of the place, and it doesn't quite work out for his for him and her. Yeah, it's never explicitly explained, but there are hints in conversation between him and. 
uh, Beasel. I think Beasel says something about being disappointed in him. And um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, when I heard that, and then you said that about how the boy might be the girl, I'm like, okay, so maybe maybe that's what it is. At some point, Royce was supposed to do that, but Royce didn't work out. You know, like Royce grew up and I don't know, he's a drifter, he likes to ride bikes, he's not <laughs> taking the interest that the boy is taking and what Beasel does. So maybe, like that. yeah, Again, it's yeah, like it's not very clear, but it's an interesting little wrinkle that you added to the narrative. Another layer of depth to this movie that definitely i'm appreciating more as we talk about it interesting yeah like i said i think um i, I wouldn't recommend rewatching it right away but i would recommend you know in a couple of years rewatch this movie and you because for me um the first time i saw it i didn't get uh, all that much out of it but once i see and i got it i gotta give that credit to um the screenplay is just it's and and I could see why this guy has gone on to 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 write some incredible movies, and he 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 won the Academy Award for L.A. Confidential. He's got some serious chops here as a writer, and I think he was yeah, really he, he does have an impressive like, uh, pedigree, and you know, he shows that here. He and who knows again? Who knows what the original draft was like before they you know all these producers stepped in and they brought in their comedian friends to 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 participate in the movie. So I I, I don't know, but I do know that. Um, Helgelin has commented that um, when he was told when he was told that I mean the movie that he had written would be too expensive to make, he said that it made him more creative as a as a writer to to um, to kind of fleshing out um, more of the characters and less focus on the set pieces. So I think that we get some interesting character development here. I think that is actually deeper than you would actually kind of think you would get in a movie like this. Um, I think so, yeah, yeah, because who knows? Had this, I think that this actually would have done well in movie theaters had it gotten the support it needed. Like even maybe not you know hundred million great, but for a movie that let's say let's say they did spend the twenty million, it probably could have doubled that profit with a little bit of print, a little bit of support, and maybe a somewhat wider release but it's just like i said like we were discussing earlier it looks like they just did the minimum required to fulfill a contractual obligation and then they just went to video so who knows you know unfortunate but that's cool uh, uh, that that didn't stop brian hildeland from just you know keep going keep writing keep writing and before that decade is over he he wins an oscar and and one of the most memorable movies of that decade prime movies of that decade right exactly um and yeah, so there's a lot more going on in this movie than I initially get kind of gave it credit for, but I think sometimes um, I've come across on this, sh- uh, I've I found on this show that a lot of times that when these restraints are put on creative individuals, that the uh, results are usually pretty outstanding. Uh, I mean, a lot of the filmmakers that I cover here on the show. You know they fa- they face these kind of restraints, and for one reason or another, it kind of it makes them have to flex that creative muscle a little bit in a, in a different way and exercise it in a different way to kind of get across the goal of what they set out to accomplish. So, you know, Helgeland has spoken highly about um, you know the movie, and you know he he is happy with it. Um, uh, Ate Deyong has said that you know. He disagreed a lot with some of the editing that got messed around with, but you know, you know, he's kind of come to terms with it. 
Um, but yet, for uh, I guess for a long time, this was a very, very hard movie to find. I think after the that initial run... Um, so what happened with... Um, with the um, the home video release was that they had so little faith in this movie that when it was released to home video, it was like a package deal with the original Terminator. So this movie did very, very, oh. it did very, very well initially on home video because of that. I mean, people, people would buy it and at stores or, you know, rental you know mom and pop shops or blockbuster would be ordering you know multiple copies because you would get a copy of the terminator too so uh oh, i get it yeah but yeah. then like then all these weird things happened with who owns the rights cuz hemdale went out of uh is out of, is is no longer in um it's no longer a thing, I guess. Pretty much, they they yeah. went out of business. They went bankrupt. So Helmdale was no longer a thing, uh, and then the rights ended up back at MGM, where this kind of started. Uh, it was you know MGM had the rights uh, before it was ever produced, but then, like I mentioned, they were given to the producers as part of a severance package, and then the rights have ended up back at MGM, and then MGM will license. Um, movies like this to something like Kino Lorber who will put together a nice little uh, package. I would say it's just a, it's like a step down from the criterion kind of um, treatment that gets done. Um, but yeah, Kino. Yeah. Kino Lorber, they, they, they find some really um, uh, some weird, obscure old school movies and they kind of give them a new life. Um, because I, I this the the this movie came about a lot because I think a lot of people started to recognize just like how weird this movie was, and I think that a lot of people that initially were turned off because it was a horror movie were like. Oh, but you're telling me it's not a horror movie. It's actually more of a comedy. Oh, okay, then I'll give it a shot. And, but you were saying that this movie probably would have done, I mean, we'll never know how this would have done theatrically. But I, another thing that I can say that I come across quite often here on the show is that this is not a movie that I would want to have to market because what aspect. It's a problem, yeah, it's a problematic. How can you market it? Yeah. Because it doesn't fit nicely into a, a little genre. I mean,. It's got weird horror elements. There's yeah, there's some weird existential kind of thing going on here. Um, there's some comedy. It's a it's a road movie. It's an action adventure. So I mean, I, I'm glad I didn't have to market it. So <laughs> that's all I had to say. But like, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, I would definitely see that as a challenge. Yeah. So I appreciate that, and I guess this is one characteristic of cult movies. They really don't fit into any neat category. You cannot quite say it's this or that. They seem to sort of go back and forth all over the place. Right. And while that makes them usually interesting to watch, as you point out, yeah, it makes them help to market them. Yeah, and then and then they kind of get forgotten until somebody starts like an, and then a company like Kino Lorber. I mean, I could I would imagine that MGM at this point were just like whatever amount of money you want to give us for the rights. We'll take it. Like we don't really care. 
You know, they got they got more yeah. money than God. They didn't, why would they care? But then it kind of so it gets, yeah. and then you get people um, kind of rediscovering the movie, and uh, it starts showing up on cult film lists, and people start talking about it again. And I, I think I'm Paul, curious now that we're talking about that one. You think they turn up on list? How did you find out about this movie? Well, I, told, I I had seen this movie years ago, probably about 20 years ago, um, what, but I rented it uh, probably from like Blockbuster or something. Uh, it was in the horror section. It was, But again, I think I had mentioned this, I felt kind of ripped off because it wasn't really a horror movie. And I was kind of going through my heart. Yeah. I was kind of going through my hardcore horror movie thing that like any, I, but like this movie is, is not, I mean, it's got horrific elements, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't think it really qualifies as a horror movie, at least in general terms of what you typically think. Especially of. Uh, I mean, this movie came out in what? It was filmed in. It was filmed in eighty nine. Uh, finished in ninety. Finally came out in ninety two. Ended up it. Uh, home video in the August of '92, so yeah, this is not the kind of movie that I would I would I think of when I think of like late '80s, early '90s horror movies. Um, yes, but I also think that I've seen this around the same age. I probably would have been the same. I would have been disappointed. Like I expected horror. Like I haven't, you know, like we're more sophisticated. We're more sophisticated people now, so we appreciate that nuance. But. As a kid, you know, like I, I, I had a more hardline approach to movies. If it's a horror, I expect horror, and so I think would have been disappointed too. Yeah. But the thing is, though, after you watch that as a teenager, do you remember it at all in the years, you know, since when you move on to do other things? Did you, did you remember it at all, or did it come into your mind recently, or did someone bring it, bring your attention to it? So I think two things happened that this ended up on my my list here to cover on the show was. Um, I think one of the movies that I wanted to cover, I might still cover it, was Drop Dead Fred because I loved that oh, movie yeah. as a kid. So I was thinking, and then I was looking, I was like, "Does well, Drop Dead Fred? Yeah, it does kind of have a cult reputation." But then I was like, "Well, I kind of like, I just kind of like the weird quirkiness of it." I was like, "Well, what else did this director do?" And then I was like, "Highway to Hell." It's like, "Oh my god!" I it, it, it all kind of came flooding back to me. Um, and then upon re, then I like watched the trailer on YouTube and I was like, Oh, I remember highway to hell. And so I got, uh, yeah, I ordered the DVD and I was watching it. I'm like, yeah, th this, I totally see why this has a cult following. I didn't get, I didn't get it. But again, I think that I, I had gone in on the mindset, like you said, like when we're at a certain age, when I rented this. I rented this from the horror section. I expected a horror movie. Highway in this was not delivering what I expected. Now, as like you said, when we grow up and we mature and we kind of open ourselves up, I mean, I it's quite possible that if I had rented this from the comedy section, uh, I might have thought differently about it upon first viewing. But you know, they. It, we got to play the, the cards that were dealt. And mm. yeah, so it's just like a series of weird kind of uh, steps that I was like, oh, so it's it's out. It's got a cult following. I do remember seeing this in the video store. 
uh, let me check it out again. And uh, I, I like it. I like it because it's um, it's so different. It's so, I mean, there is, there is, if you really want to get deep with this movie, you can actually get pretty deep in this movie. Um, we talk about mm, temptation. Yes. We talk about um, what are we doing with our lives? Because one of the things that I totally didn't get, and then I, I finally kind of picked up when the director was talking that I mean the whole there's a whole and it's not very clearly explained in the movie but there's a scene and I didn't I didn't really understand why this was coming up but there's a scene where she's in the back of the hell car and she's watching TV and it shows like two versions of her life one where she's a fat mother of kids making pizza and some weird pizza place and she's miserable and then it shows her dream i guess is to be a professional violin player i didn't get that but yes, yeah i remember that yeah so like and then like the devil gives her these choice like he never i mean it's contradictory because he stole her he kidnapped her but then he gives her the choice he's like well you could stay with me and be you'll be the most famous violin player in the world um, which, which brings us to the end of this movie because, uh, we're, uh, we're getting close here on time, but I want to talk about the ending and I also want to talk about the alternate ending with you. So, um, okay. the movie kind of, uh, it wraps up that they have, a they have to race Hellcop and they beat Hellcop because there's nitrous He's got, there's a nitrous booster in this very sweet vintage yeah, Ford I car. Unexpected. That was just there suddenly. That she's looking for a shotgun shell, but then she finds out those flick, those switches and oh wait, like so this car had NOS all this time. But and I guess like you said, yeah, that wins. Well, there was a out of hell. there is there is a scene there is a line foreshadowing that when when he's driving away. Um, after the second time going back to the gas station, when he gets the vintage Ford to go to hell to save her, the guy's yelling at him. Uh, I forgot to mention, there's something in the car. There's something special in that car. Uh, so it oh. is It is set up. It, it, I mean, it, it's oh, not... Oh, wow. Now, very clever then. Yeah, he did set it up then. Well, I thought he was just there, but no, wow, it shows... Yeah. Again, yeah, there's a lot of depth to that script. Yeah, there's it's a lot more clever than I initially gave it credit for. Um I mean there's yeah, a wow. So good. they escape hell, hell cop comes out. There's a real cop there and Adam tells them that they need to shoot hell cop in the eyes. Um that kills him. <clears throat> It's kind of anticlimactic. Well, it's not. It's kind of it's we get this big climax of this very cool chase scene where they're where they're racing where they're racing Hellcop and uh you don't know if they're gonna win or not. Then they hit the nitrous and uh they shoot out of hell and uh they're back in the real world. And then the cop I mean oh it, we should well we forgot to mention Previous to Adam going to hell, he was driving back and forth between these Joshua trees, and a real cop, not the hell cop, uh, tried to stop him. And that same cop is like right there in that same place. So I don't know if time stands still in hell. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Or the same guy from earlier. Or also, I guess one thing that I have question is: um, did hell cop cheat? A, a cheat because it's like he, they raced ahead of him. They got out of hell. 
And I thought that that would be it, but then he shows up again. It's like, wait, like they won. What are you doing here? Like, Beasel doesn't seem to be after them anymore. So I, I imagine Beasel accepts that they won, but Hellcup, I guess, did he cheat then and said, I'm going after them anyways? Well, he's Hellcop. Of course he's going to cheat. Hell's in his name. Okay. <laughs> it's one of those things, I guess. I don't know if he carries a grudge or I guess Hellcop always gets his man or woman. Yeah, but yeah, no, so it's... But he decides to just come from beyond and at least to that whole sequence um, of them. like Because um, the cop that uh, you mentioned, the real cop, handcuffs him. And while he's doing that, Hellcop just plows, appears, and, you know, beats up the other guy. I think he strangles him or, like, he smashes his skull against the car, something like that. Yeah, and then um, and then they use this uh special gun with special bullets that they got from uh Richard Farnsworth, the gas station guy, early on, and um yeah, she finds the last bullet, the last shell, and shoots Hellcop right in the eyes, and that's Adam says <laughs> this is a funny scene. They're like, he's like he's like you gotta shoot him in the eyes, and the guy, <laughs> Chad Lowe's like why didn't you tell me that before? And he's like, because I'm on your side now. And you're like, all right, kid. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. He seems to just that. Yeah, whatever makes things exciting for him. I guess he's been around forever. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, Hellcop's dead. Uh, Beasel's left there. Wife, no wife. And we fade to black. And after, so it, the end comes up. Did you stop the movie then, or did you keep watching? I watched a few seconds, but it was a, a little bit bizarre. It was like a black screen with no credits. Okay, um, if you keep watching, it, I don't know what Tubi, like Tubi might stop. Um, there's uh, like an epilogue that, t that tells you what happened with everyone, and... Oh, I missed that. Yeah. So the, it, it kind of wraps you wraps everything up. It says that um, the two characters uh, they got married. Chad Lowe and Chrissy Swanson got married. He developed some video games about their experience on hell. She runs uh, a hotter than hell pizzeria and occasionally serenades the customers with the violin. Adam, um, mm. the young boy, um, went to live with his. Uh, grandparents or his aunt and uncle. Uh, the gas station guy still warns strangers about, um, you know, the portal to hell. And it, it, so it's kind of all wrapped up. But our last shot is basically um, Beasel's left. Uh, he was watching the race on uh, on this like sand hill. And um, yeah, on the mountain. And then the, so the helicopter's dead. Now, originally scripted, the ending was supposed to be that the two characters were going to the to the airport and they were going to separate. They weren't going to get married. Now, the implication mm. the implication was that they both kind of had to find themselves. She was going to go study violin at a music conservatory. He was going to go someplace else. But they said, well, you know, maybe, you know, if it's meant to be, we'll come back together and that um, that producer came in again and said, no, 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 no. We need to have a happy ending. Um, that guy, John Daly, the one that likes to mess around with people's edits, uh, he said there needed to be a happy ending. So they kind of compromised. And so what happens is Hellcop's dead. 
uh, our two heroes are still alive. They're still together. Um, and to compromise, John Daly's like, well, okay, but you can write this little epilogue thing. So, uh, Aunt, Aunt Dejong, uh, wrote this whole thing about what happened to the characters. And then John Daly's like, we're going to put it at the very end of the credits. Like, this was before, like, you know, I know, like, end credit stingers have been around long before the the MCU, but now everybody sticks around to watch the credits because there's going to be a post-credit scene and an end credit scene. Um, yeah, so he just wanted to tack this epilogue at the very end when nobody in 1989 was going to sit through the credits to watch. Exactly, yeah, definitely not me. So what happens is now it this uh, scene ends, uh, fade to black, it says the end, and then before the credits starts, um, an epilogue comes up. Um, yeah, so that's the. Uh, what are your thoughts on the different the different? I know you didn't see either ending. Which one? Which one do you think works better for this movie? I guess the the happy ending one works better, but I like the honesty of the other one where they, you know, it's not really an unhappy ending. It's just like they kind of realize that they're kids. They don't really know themselves yet. And they they should just take some time and figure out, you know, like if they still feel the same way for each other, say a year or two later. Right. So I don't know. It's a good good compromise. I think it's a good compromise. Like the happy ending works. They're like a family in a way of speaking, but they're kids themselves. Yeah. He raised yeah. like a little boy, which is what that the movie implies that they're like a family now. Yeah, that's kind of like the feeling that I got that they were going to um that if they didn't adopt Adam, but it's it's mentioned specifically that you know, he's he's living happily with his um aunt and uncle or his grandparents or something. So everyone's And I guess there's no mention to that the fact that they, you know, their parents are expecting them to come back and like that they love. So there's that whole other Subplot, oh. almost you could say, when that's waiting for them to deal with their parents when they come back home. I'm very, very sorry. I forgot to mention the first line of this epilogue that we get is they are happily oh. married with their parents' blessing. I'm sorry. I should have mentioned oh, that. Oh, okay. So that feels a bit like attack on, yeah, like maybe don't put that there. Like everything else is okay, but don't say, oh, yeah, they're happily married with their marriage blessing. Like, right. I don't know. Like maybe say, you know, they went to college and then they got they married again. But it works, I guess. Uh, the thing is, though, I guess it's better if you had not put anything, really. Like, that ending as a face to black, that works. Right. Like, they beat the devil. Like, why are you thinking so far ahead? They've been through an incredible journey that no one, very few people experience, you know, like a journey like the one they went through. Like, and they just got through it. So just let them, you know, end, end it on that note. End, end it leave it on that note. Yeah, so I mean, the, the fact that you put a, a a prologue and you put it so far in the credits where nobody is gonna see it, like very few people would stick around that far in the credits. Well, no, 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 no. like a, almost like a fuck you to the to the director. No, 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 no. It comes before the credits start. You get this epilogue. Oh, okay, okay. I, I the original. Then it feels like originally no. Yeah, no, we get, it's weird that we fade to black and it says the end. If we fade it to black and then the epilogue started, like, it's it's like scrolling text comes up on the screen, kind of like, you know, like yeah. Star Wars with the scrolling text. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, the producer tried to tack this on at the very, very end of the credits, 
Um, but no, this this is before the credits start. But again, with Tubi, sometimes it's weird the way that they like once it says the end. Sometimes they kind of want to automatically shift you to another movie. It's like, well, you finished watching Hideaway yeah, to Hell. You should options come up below, so it doesn't really give you time to just do that. Yeah. So, and that's why I stopped it before it started another movie. I was like, okay, I, I'm not watching anything else tonight. So I just didn't stick around for that. That is really the one drawback of Tubi. Like, it just immediately, hey, you can watch this stuff. Like, let me finish watching what I'm watching now. Yeah, you get that with all the streaming services. They they're eager just to keep you hooked and watching something else. Keep you there, yeah. So um, Scary, a, kind of a some uh, quick uh, trivia here before we start wrapping up. Uh, there is a nod to the Rocky Horror Picture Show in that Beazle's truck says "Satanic Mechanic." Uh, I thank you, Andrew, my co-host, for noticing that. I didn't pick up on that. Oh. Um, yeah, what uh, it took two and a half hours for the hell cop makeup to be applied, and Damn. uh, it got to the point where that actor could only be in the makeup for a couple hours at a time because he started to get extremely claustrophobic, um, to the to like to the point where he couldn't like function like he couldn't act he couldn't function like he was so claustrophobic i would He's... imagine too plus the heat also of the desert and you're under all that latex and stuff and that thick uniform and yeah i would imagine yeah so it works i guess even though he's not in the movie a lot when he does show up he's very memorable that he never talked he, he just moves and just knocks people over takes things yeah, he is a very impulsive person so he really didn't need to talk everything he communicated through body language yeah, yeah, he's got no lines, it's all body language acting, and he was actually originally in the movie less, but peop, um, they kind of discovered early on when they were going through the dailies that this, they they were onto something with this character, so they started putting um, him in more scenes than he was uh, originally scripted. Um, for instance, that there's a fight between him and Chad Lowe's character... Um, right before or right after that whole demon temptation thing happened. There's like a fight where, um, between the two of them in this weird room, uh, that was kind of just added just to have more of the hell cop. They, they liked that. They, they, yeah. they thought they were onto something with the hell cop. So they, they put him in, uh, more than, um, than he was originally scripted. They had two, versions of the the vintage ford that is driven in the movie and two versions of the hellcop car uh one was for driving one was for stunts one of those cars the one meant for driving was almost destroyed by a uh the first stunt coordinator that they were using for the movie there's a scene where um Early on in the journey to hell, they're they're uh, they're racing. Um, uh, Chad Lowe's racing the Hellcop, and he goes off the side of the road, and the Hellcop goes like right through this big sign. Uh, apparently, the driver was supposed to stop, and he just kept going. He went right through this sign, almost killed a cameraman, and then was oh, immediately wow. he was fired from the movie. So. And the second, Damn. the second, uh, they, so they had two Ford vintage cars 
that were the main cars used in the movie, one of which was in decent condition, one of which was only used for the final stunt of the car coming out of hell and going back to the real world, and it performed its little stunt of uh, driving through this portal and landing, but immediately died after that. But they were they got all the shots that they needed, so they were lucky to do that. I'm very lucky for them. The scene with the 13-lane highway in hell, um, which, other than the Ford, every other car on that highway is a German car. Most of them are Volkswagens. Volkswagens, yeah. That was such a crazy scene. Like, all these cars are zipping along. Oh, in no lanes. It just looks like this massive strip of uh, asphalt. Well, basically, what they did was the idea was that the only cars that would be in hell would be German cars because of the Holocaust. <laughs> so, yeah, nice. what what they did is they kind of they went around to the people of um. I, I think this this was filmed in Arizona. This particular scene, they basically went around and got people to like not donate their cars, but allow their cars to be driven for that one scene. They were like, well, we need lots and lots and lots of cars. And thankfully they got enough because that scene is massive. That's all. I mean, this was all before CGI. Like we're not, we're not using CGI here. These are all cars and it's not a very long shot, but I mean, it's just amazing. Like you said, cars are going all over the place. Um, It's, it's hysterical. It's just a car zipping along. Some of them even hitting each other also. And uh, one last little piece of trivia. Uh, this is more so about Brian Helgeland uh, than it is about Highway to Hell, but it kind of wraps up um, with our whole cult film companion kind of thing. So in 1998, he won the Academy Award for L.A. Confidential. That same year, he won the Razzie for the screenplay for The Postman, which is a terribly blo- oh, wow. terribly bloated uh, Kevin Costner project. And not only mm. did, did he show up to um, receive his Oscar trophy, he was the fourth person nominated for the Razzies. If you're not familiar with the Razzies, they're pretty much the opposite of the Oscars. These are the worst movies <laughs> of the year. Uh, he was the fourth person to show up um, to actually receive his Razzie. And I only mention this because I don't think I brought this up on our Showgirls episode, but Paul Verhoeven was one of the first, if not the first, person to show up to accept his Razzie Award for Worst Director for Showgirls. <laughs> and That's funny. Not it was o- interesting, too, that 1998... Um, Payback came out, and he had originally written and directed, or rather adapted that from a novel and directed it, but I think uh, or he got replaced and someone else directed that movie, so very busy, 1997 and 1999 for uh, uh, for uh, Brian Heldeland. Well, you, you, you kind of uh, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say random movie recommendation. Oh, I recommend Payback. It was actually, Payback came out in 99, not in 98. Oh, okay, um, okay. But speaking of very busy time in the late nineties for Brian, yeah. Oh yeah, no, and he's still he's still cranking out scripts. But I yeah, will say uh, that I recommend Payback, but get 
the payback director's cut because there was a lot of studio meddling going on with payback and Helgelin's vision was greatly, greatly changed. And this is one. I have to agree with that. Yeah. And this is one case where I'm actually okay with the studio version. Like I like what they did for the studio release because I did see the, 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 the director's cut and while I liked it, I, it, I like, we talked about happy endings. I talk about not having a happy ending with the director's cut. Yeah. Well, th- we, at some point, maybe we'll cover payback, but, um, Let's uh, start oh, wrapping. Wow, I love yeah, I love those. Um, I love the. I like the movie, and I like the the book on which it's based, which is a series of novels written by Donald Westlake, in fact, under a pen name. Yeah, uh, the hunt. I wanted to uh, ask you on the trailer you read. Does it say that at some point they were considering doing a sequel with Hell Cop at the star? Because um, the video that I watched, they did mention that that they discussed it. They were so impressed with Hell Cop that they were considering. There was consideration to try to make another movie with Hell Cop at the at the center. Uh, I didn't read anything like that, and um, the director didn't mention anything in the commentary, but then again, the commentary was recorded fairly recently, so this wasn't like... I mean, I, I given given the way that Hollywood treats horror franchises, if this movie, or action franchises, if this movie had been a success, I wouldn't doubt if there had been multiple... I, highway to Hell movies because, I mean, you could say that Hell Cop is unkillable. The devil's still very much in control of Hell. We just had two people that escaped. So, yes. th- th- I mean, there's endless, literally endless possibilities here that they could explore. I didn't see anything like that just because okay. I, I, I think, I mean, this movie went through so much companies going bankrupt, this script floating from company to company. I mean, it's kind of a miracle yes, that yeah. this movie actually exists in any form today yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. Again, it's better too. Like it's this one little, it's a one time thing. It's like, a, it's a great little gem of a movie like that. And hopefully us talking about it here, will get more people interested in it because it's um one thing that happens to movies with the years with sequels is like, we saw what happened to the Hellraiser movies over the years. They became a joke and same with the howling. You know, when you consider the first howling movie, to what the, the sequels became, it, it's probably better that this just stays as it is. It's just this one one time, one one shot only. And like you said, um, it, it doesn't get diluted with sequels. And like you said, this is a little like hidden mm-hmm. hidden gem of a movie. This is definitely something to check out if you like absurdist humor and uh, you like uh, something that's a little a little smarter than you th- actually think it is. Uh, there's a, there's there's, a, there's yes, some yeah, going on. Smart, yeah, because given that can't be tone the first half, it's uh, uh, unexpectedly smart and it's a little inconsistent in tone, but it, it's uh, entertaining. Yeah, no, this is you're definitely for 93 minutes or so. Like you'll be entertained. This is a lot of fun to watch and very entertaining. And it surprises you with these little moments that kind of elevate the movie to something above average. Exactly right. I mean, there's enough, there's enough little extra little things going on in the in the costumes and the production design. Just the fact that it's filmed in actual locations, it gets you. I mean, you get wrapped up in this very weird version of hell. That actually seems like a kind of a fun place to be at times. I'm not gonna lie, but um, yeah, exactly. It seems kind of enjoyable. Yeah. So, Melvin, final thoughts on Highway to Hell? Um, check it out. It's free on Tubi. 
the way to be a setup, they will not let you watch that little um, epilogue. Uh, uh, is it epilogue or prologue? Uh, epilogue. I guess epilogue is at the end. Yeah. Epilogue, yeah. And the way to be a setup, may, it, you probably won't be able to watch that epilogue, but I feel that when it fades to black, that's it. That's really where the movie should end. And it's a lot of fun. It, it's a really well-made movie, like above average or something that feels like a would that went straight to video almost it's really well made it's a really well made movie that um well worth your time you will not be bored by watching no that is one thing i can definitely say even though andrew didn't want to talk about this movie he he watched the entire thing and he said at the very least i was entertained um but he has his. No, I'll I'll t- I'm gonna t- I'll tell you about it after we wrap up this episode. So so Melvin is a content creator. Find him on Instagram at RoboPulp and check out his online comic, The Plot. Uh, find him on Instagram. Follow him on on Instagram. Check out his comic. Follow us on Instagram at Cult Film Comp. Our website through Acast has links to our podcast on all different platforms. So wherever you choose to get your podcast of choice, I'm sure that we're available there. If we're not, you can message me on Instagram or shoot me an email at thecultfilmcompanion at gmail.com. And I want to thank my guest, Melvin, for joining me. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back with some more cult favorites very, very soon. Good night. Good night.